Well, it is a huge honor to be here with you this morning. And uh, before I do anything else, before I go any further, I, I want to take a moment and honor your leadership because I just think that you have some of the best pastors anywhere. I think your pastors are special. And uh just want to take a moment and honor you, Pastor Ron and Melissa. One thing that, that I've seen in your life that, that stands out to me is the fact that you're a kind leader. There's a kindness about you. I think one of the best kind of leaders is a kind leader. And I think you have a kindness about you. The very first time I met him, it was at a, a district event. I had just become the district youth director. He pulled me aside away, away from the group, and he looked at me and he said, look, I know you just moved to Springfield. We're from Springfield. This is the church we're at. If you need anything, somebody's giving you trouble. If you need anything, he said, you call me. You come to our church. We've got your back. Anything you need. He didn't have to do that. He could have seen me as just some young kid who didn't know what he was doing and was in over his head, but he was kind to me, and I'll never forget it. And I believe the way you treated me is probably the way you treat everybody, and it shows because you know people's name in your congregation left and right. You know your people. You're a kind leader. That is a fruit of the Spirit that sometimes gets overlooked in leadership. But I'm grateful for your kindness and the kindness of this church. So thank you so much. We honor you. Come on, we can honor them one more time. Come on, they're faithful leaders, kind leaders, and we just... We're blessed to have them in our district. Our district is great because of leaders like them and also because of leaders and youth leaders like your youth pastors, Pastor Baron Ruth. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, you may not know this, but he's kind of like famous on social media. I don't know if you know this or not, but he's got like 90,000 followers on one of the social 98,000. Excuse me. 98,000. Excuse me. And uh, so, so he's, he's famous. Yeah, we're sitting in the presence of a celebrity. But uh, Pastor Bear, uh, from the moment you came in, what I've seen is that uh, you work hard. You are for your students. You're in it with them. And uh, you're committed to this thing. You really are. And I'm honored that we get to do this together. Uh, the reason why Southern Missouri Youth Ministries is great is because of people like you. And that uh, you make it a joy to get to be a part of this. So thank you so much. I love you and appreciate you and your wife. And we're just honored to have you on the team. Well, church, I don't want to waste any time today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get your Bible out. And we're going to be in the Old Testament. Somebody say Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of Genesis today. The book of Genesis. I had a different message that I had prepared to preach. But uh, yesterday evening, I felt like the Lord put something different uh, in my heart uh, to preach today. And so that's the direction we're going to go. We're in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 this morning. And as you're turning there, I do want to make mention that I am the district youth director. I have the honor of doing that, but I don't do that alone. I've got an amazing family that does that with me. And if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't even know what day it is. And so um, we're going to go ahead and put a picture up of my family. There's my family up there. My wife is, is around here somewhere. I think she's in the back with, with our daughter, Quinn, who probably won't make it through the service. But um, that's my family. I love them very much. And we've had the honor of being the district youth director now for it'll be three years at the end of the summer, which is crazy how fast time is going. But my wife, Lauren's amazing. Like I said, wouldn't know what day it was if it wasn't for her in my life. <laughs> she makes sure that I am where I need to be when I need to be there. She's the real MVP. And then we've got our son, Jude, who I'm holding in the picture. And I know Jude is precious and he looks adorable and he is adorable. But that young man, he needs Jesus. OK, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Listen, last year we, we had a big win. He invited Jesus into his heart. Since then, he's backslidden a little bit. OK, so pray for and I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. He's in the nursery, so I can talk about him, but I'm kidding. 
Um, but we love him so much. He's just such a joy. He's, he's my best bud. And I'm so grateful that God has allowed me to be his dad. He is just, he is the greatest. And he tests my patience all the time. But man, I love him. And then our newest addition is our daughter, Quinn, who's right there in the middle, the little peanut there. Look at that face. Um, yeah. And she uh, has nights sometimes where she doesn't sleep well or she takes a long time to get to sleep and wakes us up, mainly my wife up, in the middle of the night. But how can you be upset when you wake up in the morning and her face looks like that? I mean, look at that face. Like, you really can't be mad for very long when she looks like that. She's adorable, and she's another answer to prayer, another miracle. Someone prophesied over our life. Three weeks later, we were pregnant with Quinn when it really shouldn't have even happened. It was another miracle of God's faithfulness. And so we're just so glad to be parents. We love being parents. It is, it is a blast. How many parents we got in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay, that's how you know your parents, because you're like too tired to even raise your hand. You're like trembling on the way up. I saw some of your hands like shudder, like, should I even raise my hand? Is it worth the energy? We got a full day ahead of us. But my wife and I made a commitment when we when we had kids and before we even had children. We just decided that we were still going to have fun even after we had kids. And we just decided that we were going to go on adventures and we were going to be active and do things and we were going to travel. And a while back we were on a vacation and we were visiting some friends of ours in southwest Florida. And while we were with our friends in southwest Florida, my friend tells me that he has just purchased an airplane. He tells me, hey, I bought an airplane. I'm like, you bought a what? I bought an airplane. Like who who just buys an airplane? But he tells me he buys an airplane. He says, you want to go for a flight in my airplane? I said, is it safe? He said, of course it's safe. I'm flying it. You want to go for a flight in my airplane? For some reason, I said, sure, why not? Absolutely, right? So I decided to go on this on this plane with my friend. And as we're driving up to the uh, airport, as he called it, which was really just a glorified parking lot, there's just a bunch of planes parked out on the concrete. It's nothing special. So we're driving up to his plane. I am half expecting it to be like a private CEO jet, you know, like Johnny Morris of Bass Pro Shop type private jet. Like, that's just what I've got pictured in my mind. I'm thinking, this is the plane that I'm going to get on. It's going to be awesome. All my friends are going to be jealous when I show them the plane that I got to fly in. It's going to be so cool if I survive it. It's going to be great. When we got to his plane, let me put a picture up. This is the plane that I was about to get on, just so everyone is clear. That's the plane. If you notice, I am taller than the front of the plane. You can't even see the door to the plane. The reason is because to get on the plane, you have to crawl up on the wing on all fours and crawl in through the side of the plane. The door to get in is smaller than my car door, okay? This is the plane that I had already agreed to fly on for some reason. Against my better judgment, I said, okay, let's get in. I'm ready to go. So we get in, and we're getting buckled in, and I turned to my friend. I said, hey, is there like a, like a helmet or anything that we put on in this plane? Do you, you have helmets? We wear helmets in here, right? He said, bro, if we go down in this thing, a helmet will do you no good because you will not exist, okay? He said, trust me, a helmet will not do you any good. No, we don't wear helmets in this plane. I said, okay. And so we get buckled in, and we're taxiing toward the runway, as we're taxiing toward the runway, he decides to tell me that the plane is a classic. He says, man, this thing's a classic. I said, what do you mean a classic? He said, well, it's like 60 years old. That's cool when you're talking about a car. That's not cool when you're talking about an airplane that you're getting ready to fly in. You don't want to know that it's a classic. I would have been much better off not knowing that it's a 60-year-old plane. But he said, yeah, it's a classic. It's great. 60 years old. And as we get to the runway, he reaches forward and he starts 
tapping on one of the gauges that's on the dashboard. So what are you doing? He said, well, I'm tapping on this gauge. He said, you see all of our gauges? All of them have to be up in the green zone. If they're not all up in the green zone, it means it's not safe to fly and we can't take the plane up today. This gauge right here, it needs a little help sometimes. So I just knock on the gauge to get it up in the green zone so it's safe to fly. It just keeps getting worse. At this point, I'm texting my wife, Lauren, tell Jude that I love him very much, that he's my best buddy. If I don't see you guys, make sure you know that I love you so much. I mean, I'm actually texting her this. She can confirm. I was terrified. But we get on the runway, and we, we end up getting the plane up in the air, which taking off was terrifying in and of itself. But we, we get up in the air, and we take it up 1,000, 2,000, 3, 4, 5, 6,000 feet up in the air. As we're in the plane... In my headphones, because we have the little headsets on, I hear this. Uh, hey, man, you want to fly the plane? Um, you know I've never flown a plane, right? Yeah, it's okay, man. You want to fly it? And for some reason, I said, uh, sure, I'll fly the plane. I've never even flown a flight simulator. I'm not even good at video games, okay? There's no reason why I should have been flying this plane. But I was about to fly this plane at 6,500, 7,000 feet in the air. And so I reached out and I take the yoke, which is a fancy word for steering wheel, and I am now flying this plane out over the coast of southwest Florida by myself. My friend's sitting there in the, in the other seat, but I'm actually flying, steering the plane. It was absolutely beautiful up there. It was amazing. You look down, you see the coastline, you see the ocean. It was incredible. But after about three minutes of flying the plane... I start to panic. I start to sweat. I'm getting a little bit shaky. My heart rate is going up. I'm getting nervous. I'm uncomfortable. I finally just say, I can't do this anymore. You need to take this back. And so my friend takes the yoke back and he begins to fly the plane again. And he can tell that I'm visibly shaken. He gets obvious that I'm shaken. He says, hey, are you all right? You good? I said, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. But I just, I felt like I was taking us down really, really fast. Like I felt like I was nose diving. He said, bro, you, you weren't, you weren't taking us down. I said, really? It felt like I was losing altitude. He said, no. In fact, the entire time you were flying, you weren't losing altitude. You were gaining altitude. He said, look at the gauges. He said, here's what happens. He said that the higher you fly, the more of the horizon you can see. And the more of the horizon you can see, the more disoriented you become. And what happens is up starts to look like down and down looks like up, but it's an optical illusion. It's not what it looks like. I want to preach a message this morning, and the title of the message is this. It's not what it looks like. It's not what it looks like. And the reason why I want to preach this message is because I think whether we've been following Jesus for a day or for many decades, we've probably experienced or will experience moments where our surroundings will convince us that we are losing the things that we are actually gaining. And the enemy of our soul would like nothing more than for us to believe that we are losing the anointing, that we're losing the blessing, and that we are losing ground. But church, it might not be that we're losing ground. It might actually be that we're gaining ground. But as we're gaining, there's some development that has to take place within us so that we can sustain that which God wants to pour out on us. But it's not what it looks like. There's more than we can see because God is doing things that we're not even aware of. All that we see is not all that there is. It's an op. Illusion. It's not what it looks like. 
And I know that the last 13 months would convince the church that we're losing ground, but I think if the Lord could speak to us, he would say, you're gaining ground. It just doesn't look the way that it always has, and I'm about to do something great in and through this church, in this community, and in your family. I really believe that to be true. We can't always trust what we see because there's so much more than we can see. It's not what it looks like. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 1. It says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Well, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hands and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This passage of scripture is one that I grew up hearing often. I'm a third-generation pastor's kid. My, my grandfather is a pastor. He's been ministering in the Southern Missouri District for almost 70 years. My dad's a pastor. I feel like I lived in church growing up. I heard this story many, many times. And even when I was younger, this, this story was difficult for me to listen to. I, I struggled with it often. And the reason why I struggled with this story so much is because this request that God makes of Abraham seems to contradict the love of God that I know to be true. It seems to contradict some of the stories that I had read about in other parts of the Bible and been taught. It seems to contradict the love of God. But the more that you study it and when you learn the context of the passage, you will find that this passage, it does not contradict the love of God. It actually confirms it. See, in their day, it would have been normal for pagan gods to require their followers to make human sacrifices in order to please their God. So the fact that the one true God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, had Abraham go all the way to the place of sacrifice, but did not have him make that sacrifice, it says that our God loves his people and he values life. He values the life of the old, of the young, and he even values the life of the unborn. Our God loves people and he values life. And this passage does not contradict his love. It actually confirms it. 
that God loves us, that he cares about us more than we could ever imagine. This passage confirmed the love of God. And when God first showed up to Abraham and spoke to him here in this moment, we see three words that I think are some of the most intimidating words in all the Bible. It's these three words. God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Why is that intimidating? Because if God can test Abraham, that means God can test me. God can test you. God can test us. And I don't know about you, but I don't like tests. Anybody in here grow up actually liking tests in school? You enjoyed them? Raise your hand. Hi, be proud. Come on. If you enjoy tests, raise them up right now. Okay, we're going to have a special prayer service just for you as soon as we get done with the 10 10 a.m. service because you need Jesus, all right? I don't like tests at all. I like what tests can get me. I like where tests can eventually take me, what they can earn me, but I don't like tests. But on this journey of faith, there will be tests for every single person. There's going to be some tests. And you've probably heard it preached and heard it said before that a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. I think that's true to a certain degree, but I think if we read scripture, what it actually teaches us is that a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted with more. I think the fact that God tests us is actually an indicator that he already trusts us. See, one thing I know about God is that God is a good shepherd. He's a good father, but I also know that he's a good teacher. And a good teacher never gives a test on material that has not already been taught. So anytime God tests us, he already trusts us with what he's shown us, with what he has taught us, with what he has put inside of us, with what he has revealed to us. So if you're in the room and you're feeling like you're walking through a season of testing, can you please take heart today? Can you get a little bit of swagger in your step and some confidence in your walk? Because the fact that God is testing you, it means he's trusting you with everything he's already given you and shown you. When he tests us, he trusts us. And it's important for us to to realize and understand that God's tests are unique. His tests are not like the tests of Satan, and they're not like the tests of man. The tests of Satan are always tied to temptation, but the tests of God are always tied to instruction. And the tests of man, when they are given, they're given to gauge us. But the tests of God, they're given to grow us. God does not test us so that he can examine us. He tests us so that he can expand our lives and so that he can get us ready for everything he's called us to do and everywhere he has called us to go. So if you're in the room today feeling like God is testing you, step into the test with some confidence because God has to trust in you that you can do what he's called you to do. There's trust there. Anytime God tests us, there's already some trust there. We've got to be a church that steps into the test. I think God's looking for some churches in 2021 who would step into the test, not step away from it. Who would step into the things that God wants them to step into, even when it's not easy, even when it's not comfortable. I think this might be the church. This could be the place where people say, we're going to step into the test because we know that God has something great he wants us to do. Abraham was about to step into the test. And look what God says to him. God tells him, he says, Abraham, I want you to go to the region of Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, on a mountain that I will tell you about. Not a mountain I have told you about. A mountain I I will tell you about. A mountain I will show you. A mountain I will reveal to you. A mountain that I will tell you about. That is so like God. That is so like God. 
Because so often on this journey of faith, God will require us to move in a direction long before he reveals the final destination. What that means for us is that we're going to have to be willing to take the first step before we ever know where the last step's going to be. It means we've got to be willing to start before we ever know where God's going to have us stop. I'll never forget being a freshman in high school. The glory days, right? Freshman in high school, I showed up for uh, our first day of basketball practice as a team. We all had brand new matching basketball shoes, team shoes, white and red. They were super clean. They were awesome. We're ready to go for our first day of practice. We show up. We get our stretches done. Coach has us line up, and he says, okay, everybody go outside. I said, what? He said, yeah, everybody outside. Everybody's thinking it, so I just asked it. I said, coach, why are we going outside? He said, because we're going to run. I said, coach, can't we run inside? He said, yeah, but you can run a whole lot farther outside. Please go outside. And he sends the whole team outside. We're grumbling, complaining. Like we've got our brand new shoes on. We're about to go run in the street. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Parents paid this much money for these shoes. We all got them. We're going to go tear them up. This is crazy. So we're mumbling and griping, and we, we get out there, and he lines us up in the street. That's wisdom, right? Lines us up in the street facing north, pulls out his whistle, blows the whistle, and says go. And everybody just takes off down the street. We didn't know that we were going to have to run about a quarter mile down the street past the post office, make the first right, run another three quarters of a mile down the next street, get to some train tracks and run up and over this concrete bridge five times, then turn around and run all the way back past the post office, make the left turn, make the quarter of a mile run all the way then back to the school. We had no idea how long this run was going to be. There were some upperclassmen who had an idea, but for us freshmen, we had no clue how far we were running. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how fast we were supposed to run or when we would get to stop, but it did not matter. We still had to start. We had to run when everybody else was running because that's what our leader was asking us to do. On this journey of faith, we're not going to know where we get to stop, but sometimes we've got to be willing to start. We're not going to know exactly where it's taking us or when God is going to have us stop, but we've got to have enough faith to take the first step, even when we don't know where the last step is going to be, because God's looking for us to start. He's looking for us to take the step. He'll reveal the information as we need it. He's a God of progressive revelation. What that means is that he reveals things as we need to know them. That as we make progress, the journey starts to make sense, and God makes sure we have what we need when we need it. That's who God is. For most of us, what does the first step look like today? I think it's this word, involvement. Involvement. I think God is looking for us to be more involved in his kingdom than we currently are. There's a lot of people in this room who are probably very involved in this church and building God's kingdom. I think you need to be more involved. I think we need to get involved in the children's ministry. I think we need to get involved in the youth ministry. I think we need to get involved when they're taking trips to youth camp and national fine arts. I think we need to get involved in the worship team. I think we need to get involved with ushers and greeters. I think we need to get involved in our church when we're doing outreach ministries or food programs. I think that God wants us involved because I believe there is a unique measure of influence for every single person sitting in this room or watching online, but it's impossible to have the influence that we're supposed to have without the involvement that God wants us to give. Our God wants us involved. He wants us involved in what he's doing. How do I know? Here's how. Abraham was almost a hundred years old and the Lord had him produce children. 
God really must have wanted him involved. Listen, that's not normal. That's not natural. That's supernatural. God really wanted Abraham involved in this. He was almost 100 years old having children. Not normal. But God had promised something to Abraham. He had promised him that he was going to make him into a great nation. That his descendants and the legacy he would leave would be greater than the number of grains of sand on the seashore. And that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. This was a promise that God had made to him. That the enemies of Abraham would be enemies of God. And that God would stand up and fight on his behalf. This was a promise that God had made to Abraham. But Abraham, as great a leader as he was, he could not have accomplished that promise and fulfilled it without God. Abraham couldn't have fulfilled the promise without God, but God wouldn't fulfill the promise without Abraham. He wanted Abraham involved, and that's how God works. When he accomplishes his purposes on this earth, he usually uses the people he put here to get the job done. I think he wants to use you. I think he wants to use me to build his kingdom, to reach this community, to reach this city, to reach the nation, and to reach the world through missions giving and missions going and being a part of the greatest work in time or eternity, the building of the local church. He wants us involved. I want to get more involved. Abraham was about to get deeply involved. The Bible says that he would take the first step on what would be probably about a 100,000-step journey from Beersheba to Moriah. It's interesting that in faith communities, it's, it's usually the big steps of faith that get all the attention, but it's actually the small steps of faithfulness that take us where God's trying to get us to go. Abraham was about to take those steps of faithfulness, and he did so and arrived in the region of Moriah. And it's interesting that when Abraham arrived in Moriah, He did something that seems kind of strange to some people. It's crazy, but Abraham did exactly what God asked him to do. He did exactly what God had asked him to do. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't take time and reevaluate. He didn't take time and ask other people for advice. He didn't take time and put up a Facebook poll and ask other people what they would do. He didn't ask his employees who were with him, What should I do? He didn't even stop and pray about it. He didn't stop and make a choice. Why? Because he had already made a decision. See, Abraham made a decision in Beersheba, so he didn't have to make a choice at Moriah. I think there might be some of us in the room who desperately need to make a decision today so that we don't have to make a choice tomorrow. Some of us might need to make a decision to be faithful in our finances and our giving today so that we don't have to make a choice in November. Some of us might need to make a decision to be faithful in our relationships and in our friendships right now so that we don't have to make a choice next year when things get really difficult again. And some of us parents and grandparents in the room, we need to make a decision that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord so that even when we walk through the dark and lonely times, there is no question as to who we're following or where we're going because we already made a decision that Jesus is going to be our leader and wherever he tells us to go, we will go that his word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I think God is looking for some decision makers today. Because when we make a decision today, we don't have to make a choice next year. We don't have to make a choice because we've made a decision that we're going to be faithful. Come good, bad, ugly, or anything in between, we're going to be faithful. Abraham made a decision. For some of us, our families desperately need us to make a decision. 
Our church needs us to make a decision. Our coworkers need us to make a decision. People around us need us to make a decision that we're going to be faithful so we can live the life that God wants us to live and ultimately reach them. Abraham made a decision so he didn't have to make a choice. And the Bible tells us that Abraham and Isaac then begin to hike up the top of this mountain together. And we see what I believe is one of the most heart-wrenching moments in, in all of the Bible. As Abraham and Isaac are hiking up this mountain, we see that Isaac, the son, the boy, turns to his father and he says, Father, yes, my son. He says, Dad, I, uh, I see that you got the knife. It's good. It's sharp. Praise God. Uh, I see that we've got the torch for the fire. I've got the wood here carrying it on my back. But Dad, uh, I don't see a sacrifice. <laughs> Where's the sacrifice? We got all the supplies that we need, but but where's the sacrifice? Dad, I don't see a sacrifice. And then Abraham, probably holding back emotion, trying to be strong for the sake of his young son, he says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice, my son. The Lord will provide a sacrifice. How could Abraham say that? How could Abraham make that statement? Knowing what God had said to him, knowing the last instruction that God had given him, how could Abraham make that statement to his son, knowing that as his son is asking about the sacrifice, he is the intended sacrifice? How could Abraham say that? Well, here's how. Because even though Abraham had heard what God said, he remembered what God had promised when he said that through your son Isaac, you will become a great nation and your descendants will outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. He remembered that God made a promise and he knew God to be faithful. So he knew that somehow God was going to do something. And even though Abraham could not have predicted exactly what God was going to do on top of that mountain, he still professed that God was going to do something on top of that mountain. Church, what would it sound like if you and I started to profess that God was going to do something, even when we could not predict what God was going to do? What if we started to profess that God was going to do greater things than we could ask, think, or imagine, even though we could not predict what those things might be? I think what would happen is we would raise up the next generation to not just say what they see, but to say what God already said in his word, standing on his promises, believing that he's faithful, saying he is going to do what only he can do in and through my life. We got to make the profession of faith. If I could get the keys to come up, that would be great. Make me sound a little more spiritual. He made the profession of faith, even when he could not predict exactly what God was going to do. He still professed that he was going to do something. It reminds me of being a kid. My dad would drive me to school every day. He'd drive me to school and in his car, which at the time was usually a pretty banged up car. There was definitely a time when we had no floorboard on that side. I promise you there were holes in the floorboards of the, of the car that we were driving. He dropped me off in front of the school put his hand on my knee and he would pray over me before I got out of his car. And he would say, Lord, I pray that you'd give him wisdom. I pray that you'd help him to be a leader. I pray that you would help him to do the right thing. God, give him wisdom, help him to be a leader and help him to do the right thing. And every now and then he had to pray for my grades. Okay. Cause I wasn't the brightest young man at times, but he would pray those prayers over me before I got out of his car every single morning. And then there were the prayers that my mom would pray over me. 
when I was out late on the weekends sometimes after I was able to drive and I would come home sometimes way later than I was probably supposed to. I know she would stay awake late and pray for me while I was out and she would pray things like, Lord, I know that you love him, you care about him, you've got a plan for his life. Help him not to do anything tonight that would compromise the calling that you've placed on his life because I want him to live the life he was always meant to live. And I didn't realize it then, but I know it now that the prayers my parents were praying were not just being spoken to my current posture, but they were being spoken over my future potential. And the only reason why I can stand up here on this stage is because I had parents who professed the word of God over my life, even when they could not predict exactly what God would do in my life. But out of faith, they made the profession. Church, what would it sound like if we started to make the profession of faith that our children will come back to God, that they will be the next generation of preachers and missionaries and leaders? What would it sound like if we said, I know things are difficult right now, but I believe God's going to do something great in the lives of the next generation yet. And I don't understand all their ways or their methods, but I believe God's doing something in them and they're going to be a part of the greatest evangelistic effort that the world has ever seen. Come on, can we please be a church that would profess faith over the next generation? Profess God's word over them. If we're not going to profess the word of God over them, who is? Culture will not. The government will not. Our schools most likely will not. We've got to be the ones who will profess the word of God over the next generation, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And even when it seems like hope is lost, hope is not lost because Jesus always wins and he can always do things that we could never do for ourselves. It's who Jesus is. It's what he does. We've got to make the profession of faith. So Abraham, he couldn't have predicted what would happen, but he professed that God was going to show up and provide. And so they start walking the rest of the way. They hike up this mountain. The Bible tells us that they get to the place where Abraham was going to make the sacrifice. And he, he builds this altar with the stones on it. And then he, he gets the wood and he fastens the wood to the top of the altar. Takes his son, his only son Isaac who's probably his closest friend other than God himself and his wife, son Isaac, lays him on the altar, binds him to the altar, pulls out the knife, raises it up in the air. He's getting ready to slay his his own son. That's what God wants. He's getting ready to do it. And God gets his attention, draws his attention to a nearby bush or a thicket, that had an animal caught in it. It was a ram, essentially a sheep that was caught up in this thicket. And the Lord allows him to sacrifice this ram, the sheep, instead of his son. And what happens is this moment that looks like it was going to be incredibly painful ends up being prophetic. This moment, it looked like it would be one of the more painful moments in the entire Bible, but it ended up being prophetic. See, in the Old Testament... The son would carry the wood up the mountain on his back. In the New Testament, the son would carry the wood on his shoulder. In the Old Testament, the son was led to a mountain that's set in a geographical region known as Moriah. In the New Testament, the son was led to a hill that's set in a geographical region that at one point was referred to as Moriah. In the Old Testament, we see that the son was bound to a wooden altar. In the New Testament, we see that the son was nailed up on a wooden cross. 
in the Old Testament, we see that God provided a ram, essentially a sheep, to take the place of Abraham's one and only son. But in the New Testament, God provided his one and only son to take the place of all of the sheep. And in the Old Testament, the blood of Isaac did not have to be shed because in the New Testament, the precious blood of Jesus was shed on the cross of Calvary. And guess what, church? The blood still works. It doesn't go old. It never goes bad. It's the precious blood of Jesus that cleanses from all unrighteousness. It never gets old. It never runs dry. It's the blood of Jesus. And this moment, the redemptive moment of the world was prophesied thousands of years earlier when Abraham did not have to sacrifice his own son because Jesus was going to die as the son of God thousands of years later. Represented what God was going to do for all of humanity. What happened is this moment didn't end up being painful, it ended up being prophetic because it wasn't what it looked like. There was so much more happening than anyone could have seen or noticed beforehand. God was doing more than even Abraham thought. It wasn't what it looked like. And the Bible tells us that after this moment, Abraham then calls God by a name that he had never been called by before. He called him Jehovah Jireh, which means God the provider or the Lord will provide. And not only did he call the Lord a name that he had not been called, the Bible tells us that Abraham actually renamed the very place where he was standing as the place where God will provide or in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. He renamed the place where he was standing. In the Old Testament, people were known usually by the family from which they came, but places were known according to what God did there. So Abraham was renaming the place according to what God did there. It wasn't what it looked like. God was doing more. I think that God might want some of us to rename the season that we're currently walking in because it's not what it looks like. God is doing more than you think he is. He's working on your behalf in ways that you don't even see, that you're not even aware of. And it might be time to rename the season, not as a name it, claim it, but because God is faithful and there's always more happening than we could ever know. For some of us, maybe this has been a season of doubt. I think God might want us to rename this as a season of confidence because it's where he restored our confidence. For some of us, maybe this has been a season of depression. I think God might have us rename this as the season of joy, where God returned our joy unspeakable that only he can give. This might be a season that we have called a season of anxiety, but God might want us to rename this as the season of peace because he's given us a peace that acts as a guard for our heart that nothing and no one can destroy. It's a peace that passes all understanding. For some of us, this may be a season where we felt very lost, but this could be the season that the Lord says, no, 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 you have been found in the shadow of the Almighty. This is the season where you're found. You stand to your feet all over the auditorium today. It's not what it looks like. God's doing more than you can see. He's working on your behalf. It's easy for us to say that we're no longer in 2020 and we're coming out of the pandemic, but we all know that there's still a long way to go and days might still be difficult ahead. 
we're, we're going to need the confidence that only God can give, that he's doing more than we can see. We're going to need the peace that passes all understanding. We're going to need the clarity in a world of confusion. We're going to need to know that we've been found, even though it feels like some days we might be kind of lost. And we can rest assured that it's not what it looks like, because God is doing more than we could think, ask, or imagine. Not just for some of us, but for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. You bow your heads, close your eyes all over this place today. Maybe you're in the room, and you know that this isn't just a season where you feel lost, but you know that you you are currently lost, and maybe you've never been found, maybe you've never had a relationship with Jesus, you've never accepted the free gift of mercy, grace, and love that Jesus offers, maybe you've never accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for our sins, or maybe it's just been a really long time since you've had a relationship with him. And today is your moment, because I think God wants to rename this season for you as the season in which you were found. You need to know that God loves you more than anyone he's ever had to love. You are as important to God as anyone who's ever lived. And if you'd have been the only one that sinned, Jesus would have come and died just for you. Our sin separates us from God. But Jesus came and paid the price for our sins so that we could be in relationship with God. Bible tells us that we've we've all messed up. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible also tells us that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that can be you today. So if you're in the room and you want to begin a new relationship with Jesus, and you want to rename this as the season where you've been found. His grace and mercy. If that's you, on the count of three, I'm going to have you put your hand up all across this place. Maybe you've never had a relationship with him or it's been a really long time and you need to recommit your life to him. If that's you, on the count of three, just put your hand up. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he died on a cross for you. Three, he walked out of the grave for you. If that's you, just put your hand up. Awesome. You can put it down. Anyone else? Just put your hand up. You want to receive Jesus today as your Lord and Savior receiving the gift of love and mercy and grace that he offers. I believe God's going to rename this season for you as the season in which you were found. Anybody else? We're going to pray a prayer together. So we believe these moments are best lived out in the context of community. I'm going to have everyone across the room pray this prayer with me. Join with those who have raised their hand to receive Jesus as their Savior. Let's do this together as a family. Say, Dear Jesus, Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Change my heart. Change my mind. Change my direction. I want to be a follower of you all the days of my life. And Jesus, help me see what you want me to see. Give me a heavenly perspective. Help me to have a new confidence. Renew my joy. Renew my peace. Help me to follow you forever. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Can we celebrate those who just made the best decision of their life to give their heart to Jesus? They stepped from death to life in a moment.
and something to celebrate. But I also think that God wants to do something in the hearts of those who maybe have known Jesus for a long time. But we need a new perspective. We need to see things the way that God sees them. We need a fresh revelation. And we want to take this reminder that God's doing more than we think. And we want to take it to heart. But ask God to fill us with the joy and peace that only he can. So right now, I'm going to pray a prayer over you. I'm going to ask you to lift your voices with me. If you're a prayer warrior, would you lift your voices for yourself, but also for those in the room who desperately need a touch from God? Maybe they know Jesus, but they need God to do something in their life today that nothing and no one else can do. I believe that's what God does. He's still the healer. He's still the prince of peace. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the great physician, the alpha, the omega, the great I am, the root of David, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I think he can still do things on our behalf that no one else can do. Come on, let's lift our voices and call on the name of the Lord for a moment.